Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV. And before we get into everything today, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and me at DJ XIV on both Twitter and Instagram. Hop in our Discord and talk to other fun pop music fans and thinkers. That link will be in the show notes and on social media. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode, both in the show notes and on our social media channels. Guys, come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous. It's a week from Saturday, October 22nd. It's our Halloween edition. For those who don't know, this is the queer pop party I throw and DJ every month. If you are queer or you're a queer ally and you love pop and you're in the LA area, we want to see you there. So tickets for that will also be in the show notes of this episode and will be on our social media channel. And head over to Pop Pantheon Pod into the store and you can buy our niche legend dad hat and be the coolest person you know. Lastly, this is our final call for our listener survey. Go over to poppantheonpod.com and tell us what you think about the show, what you're liking, what we can do better so that we can continue to serve you exactly the content that you're looking for. So that's my housekeeping. Let's get into this week's episode, which is one of my favorites we've done. It's about an artist that is both foundational to the conception of the modern pop star in the 1980s, which is obviously foundational to all the ways we continue to think about it today, and also a really seminal gay pop figure who had to grapple with a lot of complicated cultural and social norms in terms of how he was able to reveal and unfurl his sexuality publicly, but nonetheless stands as a really important figure in the ongoing trajectory of having openly gay pop stars. Most importantly, though, just an incredible hit maker with so much incredible music. It was just an absolute blast to get to return to this music. Like, You're going to have so much fun listening to this. I just know it. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, George Michael. One thing that has always fascinated me about pop stardom is the way these figures either link or sometimes explicitly don't their quote-unquote true selves to the blown-up caricature of reality that the profession requires of them. Sometimes it's a simple correlation. Who Taylor Swift is on record feels more or less like an amplified version of who Taylor Swift is IRL. Other times, the pop star version can come across as a totally put-on character. Early Lady Gaga comes to mind. Most stars obviously fall somewhere in the middle, both bearing their souls and structuring glistening facades in equal and interlocking measure. What happens, though, when queer identity is thrown into the mix especially during a time in history when exposing it openly would not have been a valid option for a centrist pop aspirant. How does a clandestine grappling with and slowly coming into one's sexual identity affect pop star iconography? Through one lens, George Michael's formidable career feels like a case study in this. A virtuosically talented singer, songwriter, and producer who seemed to start wholly in one place, creating perhaps the consummate perfected facade, the platonic ideal of what a centrist male pop star should be, and ending up, as he came more fully to know and own who he really was, on something entirely more thorny and human an ultra-personal and quiet song craftsman making intimate music that grappled deeply with his demons and largely shunned the spotlight. 
In all modes, though, whether pulling out all the stops to brazenly scale Pop's Mount Olympus or equally brazenly rejecting that whole idea, George Michael's output represents some of the best of what Pop can be under any guise or lack thereof. George Michael was born in the Finchley section of East London in 1963 to a Cypriot father and English mother. When George was in his early teens, the family moved to the village of Radlett, where, while attending middle school, he became friends with a classmate named Andrew Ridgely. Michael and Ridgely were both ambitious music obsessives and immediately began jamming together. As they got into their later teens, the boys formed a short-lived ska band called The Executive, which, once it disbanded, made way for the two to begin the duo which they would eventually christen Wham! Under the new moniker, Michael and Ridgely recorded some demos including Wham! Rap, which, strangely enough for two British white boys, was a riff on the seminal rap classic Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. Wham! Rap, along with a few other early recordings, led to a record deal with British indie label Intervisions and the release of Wham!'s debut album, 1983's Fantastic. That album, comprised largely of almost campily silly, tinnily produced, yet undeniably hooky novelty hits that were also subtly laced with social messages, spawned numerous top tens in the UK, including Young Guns, Wham Rap, Club Trapicana, and Bad Boys, and eventually led to triple platinum album sales, although it failed to make an impact in the States. The creation and success of Fantastic, along with their follow-up 1984's Juggernaut Make It Big, also made it increasingly clear to both Michael and Ridgely that Michael was the far more formidable talent both in and out of the studio, a savant who was becoming increasingly adept at driving the entire songwriting process from conception to production to live performance almost entirely by himself. As Michael stepped further into the role of pop or tour, Make It Big did just what its title aspired for stateside. The album, which built on the gleeful, near-camp frivolity of Fantastic, but with even stickier hooks and decidedly upgraded production values from Michael, sold 6 million copies in the US and sparked a slate of classic early 80s hits, including the number three peaking Freedom and the number one classics Everything She Wants, Careless Whisper, and of course, the Motown indebted Sugar Rush of the album's lead single, Wake Me Up Before You Go Go, a song which turns utter nonsense into something irresistibly sublime. Wake me up before you go go Make It Big was notable for reasons other than just being a star-making hit parade for Wham. First, its visual elements, most notably the uber-coiffed hairstyles and pristinely manicured handsome faces of the boys, along with their Choose Life t-shirts in the video for Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, represented a formative moment of early MTV pop stardom where visual images became just as important as hit records. Secondly, despite their success, the band was not taken particularly seriously by the critical establishment, who dismissed them as meaningless, vapid fluff, all facade and no substance, a label which Michael would spend almost the entirety of his solo career career fervently attempting to outrun. And lastly, the single Careless Whisper, a gloriously melodramatic ballad with perhaps the most memorable sax riff in pop history, and an absolutely gorgeous vocal performance from a fastly maturing Michael, was a departure from both Wham's jangly light-as-air dance singles and the first song credited to a solo George Michael. The fact that it was as big of a hit as it was, reaching number one in no fewer than 25 countries across the world, helped lay the groundwork for what began to feel like his inevitable break from the group. Wham released a 
series of compilation albums and one-off singles through the middle of the 1980s, including hits like Last Christmas and I'm Your Man, before amicably disbanding in a seemingly open acknowledgement on the part of both men that whatever this duo was was far too confining for the ever-expanding talent of George Michael. The full extent of what Michael could achieve as a pop star and songmaker, though, would be realized in his next endeavor, his seminal debut solo album, 1987's Faith. Here, Michael laid bare his ambitions to become one of the premier pop icons of the era, creating a record that ran the gamut from rockabilly to gospel-inflected R&B to sweeping gut-punch ballads to Prince-styled peons to, well, the joys of fucking. Each mode, though, while disparate, were linked together by Michael's meticulous utilization of canonically Black soul and R&B musical aesthetics, both in the production and vocals, as well as his impeccable ear for soundscapes both lush and economical. The subject matter, too, tossed out some, though not all, of the zany ephemeralness of Wham! in exchange for weightier themes like the interplay of sex and religion, complicated relationship power dynamics, and operatic heartbreak, while never losing its essentially mainstream, wholly accessible pop sensibility. Michael had also mastered the iconography of video-era pop stardom, donning his now iconic swooped-back hairdo, manicured beard, dangly earrings, aviator shades, and leather jackets, portraying the supreme pop heartthrob in all of Faith's videos, performances, and promo. All of this added up to something seismic. Faith turned George Michael into one of the biggest and most acclaimed icons of the era, earning rapturous reviews, winning Album of the Year at the Grammys, selling over 25 million copies worldwide, and helping set the template for the modern pop blockbuster. Its coterie of hits speak for themselves. The number five speaking Kissing a Fool, the number two lead single I Want Your Sex, and of course the four chart toppers Monkey, One More Try, Father Figure, and the legendary title track. Yes, I gotta have But, as the classic behind-the-music cliché goes, while Michael was at his absolute career zenith, things were not so rosy in his personal life. While he was actively portraying the role of a straight man in public, cavorting with girlfriends and using she and her pronouns in all of his love and sex songs, Michael had privately been out as queer to close friends since the Wham! days. As such, as his pop persona grew in stature and calcified him as a classic heterosex symbol, there was a growing dissonance forming between George Michael the pop star and George Michael the person. Whether for this reason or others, he described the Faith era retrospectively, and particularly the massive tour which supported the album, as some of the most miserable times of his life. Michael took three years to follow up Faith, and his approach to his next record, 1990's Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1, was nearly night and day. If Faith was all about perfecting the veneer of pop stardom and music in its most maximalist form, Listen aimed for something much smaller and more delicate. Largely comprised of moody acoustic ballads and decidedly introspective lyrical themes including unfulfilled desire and the painful struggle of self-actualization, Michael's shunning of the A-list pop stardom he had so openly campaigned for on Faith was also infamously reflected in his refusal to appear in any of the promo for the album, including on its cover or in any of its music videos, essentially shelving the veneer he'd built up in the previous album cycle. This all began to lead up to what would eventually become a massive legal conflict between Michael and his label Sony, as well as a divisive commercial and critical reaction to listen without prejudice, with some lauding Michael's pursuit of artistic and personal integrity and others decrying the lack of a quote-unquote proper follow-up to one of the biggest pop releases of all time. Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1 was a moderate success by Michael's standards, selling a respectable 8 million copies, less than half of Faith, and spawning both the number one lead single Praying for Time and of course the number eight peaking Freedom 90, which explicitly laid out the story of Michael's shifting approach to celebrity and, in contrast to most of the material on this record, stands as one of music history's most absolutely life-affirming blasts of pop gospel uplift ever recorded. Freedom. 
Listen Without Prejudice was meant to be followed up quickly by a sequel that contained dance songs and played more like the true inheritor to face aesthetics clamored for by some of Michael's fans. However, Michael's legal conflicts with Sony only grew in the wake of Volume 1's promotional cycle, or lack thereof, all of which led to a six-year gap between that record and 1996's Older. In the meantime, Michael met and fell in love with Brazilian stylist Anselmo Falepa, his first serious relationship with a man. Falepa died from AIDS a mere two years after meeting Michael, a life-shattering event for the singer which also added to his lack of desire to return to the spotlight. In this period, between Prejudice and Older, Michael released hit one-off singles like his cover of Elton John's Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me and Too Funky. When Older was finally released, Michael had taken an even more bold step away from Faith's shimmering sound with an album of largely downcast insular records that incorporated elements of trip-hop and jazz and dealt directly with Michael's ongoing grief at Philippa's death, as well as more explicitly gay topics like open relationships, cruising, and the HIV crisis, despite the fact that Michael was still publicly closeted. The record spawned the top 10 hits Jesus to a Child and the R&B groover Fast Love Part 1. It did relatively well in the UK, but was not well-received commercially in the US. In 1998, Michael was forced to come out publicly after being arrested for soliciting sex from an undercover cop in a public Los Angeles restroom, an event which Michael ultimately took in stride, finally publicly claiming his sexual identity soon after, and even poking fun at the incident a year later in the video for his single Outside. Michael released a series of one-off singles through the late 90s and a cover album in 1999, as well as his final solo album, Patience, in 2004. In the 2010s, he largely retreated from the spotlight, and he died tragically in 2016 from dilated cardiomyopathy at the age of 53. Wham! has sold 30 million records worldwide, has 11 UK top 10 singles and six number ones, and seven US top 10 singles and three number ones. As a solo artist, George Michael has sold over 120 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling musical artists of all time. He has 23 top 10 singles in the UK and seven number ones, and 15 top 10 singles in the US and eight number ones. He's won three Brit Awards, four MTV VMAs, three AMAs, and two Grammy Awards, including Album of the Year for Faith. He is also considered one of the most significant cultural icons of the MTV generation, helping solidify the music video form, and of course, one of the most prominent gay pop stars in history. Here with me to discuss the wonderful work and legacy of the legendary George Michael is Pop Pantheon fave, senior writer for Jezebel, Rich Juzwiak. <laughs> Okay, so I'm here once again, senior writer for Jezebel, Rich Jezwiak. Rich, welcome back to the show. Thank you. This might be the one I'm most excited about doing. Oh my God, that's so great to hear. It was really fun for me because I know about George like kind of peripherally. He's like a pop figure that I think we all know in name, but I hadn't really taken such a huge deep dive into all of his work. And it was just one of those moments that I sometimes have on the show where I'm just like so moved by the experience that I was kind of sitting on my couch, like tearing up at a certain point, like in the later part of his discography because I think if you have like a passing knowledge of him you think about like faith and freedom and wake me up before you go go and like these incredible yeah. immaculate up-tempo pop songs but this man had some like deeply tragic and sad material and really conveyed so much pathos in his work and his life story also seems kind of sad which I guess maybe you'll be able to help us illuminate because I know you yes. read the book but 
But I don't know. I was very moved by the experience of listening to this man's music. He was tragic, but in a really touching way. Is that a weird characterization? No. And I think that in general, he kind of sneaks up on you in a way. It's kind of hard to describe his greatness in a sentence, really, because a lot of it was just like ultra competence. You know, Mm. he was just really good at writing pop music and he was really good at packaging it. Sometimes very simply, if you watch the Faith video, I mean, it's just kind of like flashing iconography basically at you Mm -hmm. and it worked so well but it's kind of all of that in aggregate it's his articulation it's his sensitivity it's a lot of stuff that is actually kind of like hard to put your finger on unless you're actually experiencing it Mm. And, and you realize really how he took pop music as an opportunity to express his life and to really make it memoiristic in a way that like a lot of people of his echelon even people like prince didn't really do so much or, or at least not that directly and to do so in the context of his ongoing expressions or hiding of his sexuality which like obviously i couldn't go back and listen to all this music and try to sort of put myself in each era and try to think about like is he attempting to convey this is he attempting to obscure yes. this and you can really watch that evolve through the music to the point where when you get to older which was the last record he released before he like officially kind of was forced out of the closet by that arrest in that bathroom and he was cruising you can really almost feel that he's starting to like scream at the audience on some level like hey like I'm gay without like going yeah to that point that record i was like so moved just thinking about it as a obviously like a ode to his lover that died from hiv in the early 90s but also just the way that he was clearly attempting to sort of convey the tragedy of the deeper levels of him having to hide this and him trying to express these things about himself and also a real aids record i mean without him being out and gay that album smacks to me as one of like the most explicit expressions of height of AIDS gay tragedy (laughs) in a sense definitely it's certainly an album that was recorded in the glass closet and in that way it's really this nuanced kind of experience because a lot of gay men a lot of queer people can relate to life in the closet but rarely is it expressed as it's happening in art you know right so that's a really fascinating record despite i think it's kind of couched in this very adult contemporary slow you know the first single is jesus as a child very kind of slow my teenage mind could not process that song i was like why did he release this (laughs) the album is called older which is as taboo an adjective as you'll find in pop music he's embracing this adultness and yet it's this like really sophisticated text on what Mm. it's like to be openly closeted and yes On that note, the book that you referred to and the book that I will be referring to repeatedly, George Michael, A Life, is by a writer, James Gavin. It came out earlier this year. It's kind of a definitive biography on George Michael. And what I like so much about this book is that... It takes you through his career, always coming back to his sexuality and what his relationship was to it, because George Michael started cruising, at least as reported in this book, around 16. Andrew Ridgely, in his book, said that George Michael came out to him between the release of the first two Wham! albums, Fantastic and Make It Big. So George Michael was always aware of his sexuality as far as the U.S. pop market is concerned. He's always closeted. This wasn't the kind of thing where he like, oh, I've been dating women and now I've discovered this, you know, how many years into my career, he always was aware of that. So I think that like that 
puts things into a kind of perspective, you know? Absolutely. And it was also comical looking back at the Wham era. I mean, it's very gay. Like a lot of what he does is very gay. Even the sort of like pristine plucked image of the faith and listen without prejudice eras that beard the way it's trimmed the earrings the whole look of it feels almost like table setting gay iconography 100% it is so interesting to me Rich that you have an entire generation of male pop stars in the 1980s Michael Prince George Michael David Bowie whatever these like incredibly androgynous men and yet everybody was just sort of like operating on the like well they have haven't said it so they're not like how did that work as someone who wasn't cognizant in the moment as that was happening like i look back on that and i'm like how did that work like how did we move from a society that was like totally chill with prince wearing heels and michael and all of his shit and all the stuff that was going on there and yet was more homophobic than than it was moving forward. And yet we were like fully willing to like accept this sort of like dissonance of these like androgynous men as long as they didn't explicitly say that they were gay. I don't know. It's like the weirdest thing to me. I don't know. It is really strange. And I even if you look at somebody like Boy George, who was like openly right. gay or, or bisexual or whatever he said, Elton John talked about being bisexual in the 70s. A certain pass has always been given for creativity. Right. George Chauncey in his book, Gay New York, which talks a lot about how frequent and and visible homosexuality was in the 1890s, 1900s, into the 1930s in New York. It really wasn't until kind of the Great Depression and a lot of kind of anxiety around Mm. World War II and obviously McCarthyism happened. And apparently a certain faction of that anxiety was after the image of the gay man as the fairy had kind of transformed and it became like, oh, masculine presenting men are also gay there was a certain fear that Uh. like there could be one lurking in your neighborhood so i think in a certain way maybe there was a little bit more acceptance for somebody who was so flamboyant because they weren't that hidden threat that like the real masculine gays that are going to get you were so maybe that's part of it i'm sure that's not all of it obviously femophobia is a huge problem a huge contributor to homophobia it is very strange that what people were able to get away with and what people are still able to get away with within <laughs> yes. a, a still very heterocentric society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. But it really was the kind of thing where we needed people to say it out loud in order to like feel it for sure. Although right. people were whispering about him and openly asking him questions about his sexuality pretty early into his career. He was answering these questions a lot. Mm. So people thought it, but he had the tunes. And I think that's yeah. what it is. That's what it is with George Michael. Like he just, his songs are undeniable. The guy had a crazy ear for melody. And that I think has contributed as much to his success as anything else. I love what you said earlier also about him being just like the ultimate competent pop craftsman. Like that really is true. It's like, he's not the true trailblazer that like a prince was. And right. There's so many pop stars that have that thing about them but George Michael just did it so well on every single level the song craft the presentation the music videos the epic scale albums the production he did it all by himself also which is like so fucking crazy like I don't know how many people yeah it is really crazy I mean he literally self-produced all his records so I felt that way too and and you can really hear I mean he openly said about Faith I wanted to be making records on 
par with like Thriller and with Purple Rain, etc. Yes, and absolutely. you can hear Prince a lot throughout. We'll talk about that. I definitely hear a you lot can. of Prince, like on I Want Your Sex, etc. etc. But he definitely. is an incredibly moving and important figure in the trajectory of representations of gay males in the pop space. And we had an episode on the Scissor Sisters a while back, and I was talking to Matthew about how Jake Shears felt to me like the first out gay pop star who like in the height of his fame was like I'm gay and all my music's about being gay it wasn't like subterranean and George wasn't able to do that even though like he was able to funnel some of his gayness into his music especially as it went on it still feels like by the time he actually was out out that kind of was post him being like a relevant pop star for sure for sure he's a turning point in that but I think that it's gonna be fun for us to go back through this and like track this all like both on the level of like what was happening on his personal life and then like where he was going with it in his music so yes I think what I'd like to first get into with you is a little bit of light background about George Michael like who is he where is he born to whom is he born and like what's his upbringing like and sort of how does it all lead him to singing songwriting production etc so he's born in North London the North London town of East Finchley his father he was a restaurateur Mm. from Cyprus his mother was a dancer, Leslie Angold. And I think the most important thing to know about his childhood is that his father was extremely domineering. And he was close mm-hmm. to his mother, but his mother also had this kind of paranoia about her son not being manly or boyish enough. His father legitimately hated pop music because he thought all pop stars were gay. <laughs> <laughs> according, This is according to... The, oh my god. I know. So, wow. so then that... That just casts his entire life as this one big rebellion via pop. And that's according oh, to his friend um, my God. Andros in uh, George Michael Life, he's quoted. Wow. Freud would be shining down with a big smile at that little It's fact truly played. incredible. He really showed his father. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like if you wrote that in a screenplay, they'd be like, oh, it's too on the nose, actually. You're doesn't believe. Yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> Okay. He was big into music as a kid, and he Mm -hmm. remembered in the Freedom Uncut documentary, which was recently re-released, it was this documentary that he'd been working on when he died, and it kind of looked over his career, but with a big focus on the Listen Without Prejudice era. He talked in this Mm -hmm. documentary about having these Supremes and Tom Jones seven inches as a child, and he jokingly said that he wound up somewhere between the two, which is not a bad capsule of George Michael. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, his obsession... I think with like Motown and the girl groups of that era is evident like so heavily in Wham, but then obviously ultimately like throughout his entire career. And obviously we're going to talk about the fact that like George Michael feels like one of the rare artists that is quote unquote invited to the barbecue or whatever. Like he is an artist who engaged with black musical forms in a way that somehow felt like approvable by the source material. I mean, even if you just look at all the people that he ultimately collaborates with from Aretha to Whitney to Mary Day, whatever, like clearly Stevie Wonder, unlike Miley Cyrus or whoever, or even Justin Timberlake, I guess, you know, this was somebody that was a white person that was somehow like deeply entrenched in black history of music and was able to like pull that off in a way that felt like not violating. You know, this kind of appropriation is also part and parcel of gay culture Mm. because you're not born into gay culture typically. Generally speaking, gay people have straight parents and so you're basically rudderless and culturally always. I mean, obviously there are certain things that you're pulling from, but there's a certain sense that none of this is exactly mine, so you're constantly taking, I think that's why drag Mm. is basically sampling culture 
culture always mm. Chauncey to bring him up again because I just read Gay New York talks about this bricolage of culture that gay men have, have formed for themselves mm. and also obviously appropriation is a cornerstone of pop music pop music is all about taking these niche forms and making them accessible you know this right. is this was right. Madonna's entire the way that she <laughs> operated always you know like right. Madonna always got to the party whether it was like electronica or new jack swing or trip hop or post disco mm-hmm. boogie or any of the mm-hmm. stuff that she worked on late and mm-hmm. she's like okay now i'm gonna do it the madonna way you yes. know another famous gay man of course exactly <laughs> so it is interesting to me the way that all of this sings you know in a way that like you said is very on the nose george michael mm-hmm. in some ways is kind of this prototypical gay pop fanatic turned pop star he kind of is living the dream <laughs> uh-huh. i think implicit in a lot of gay men's obsession with pop music. Oh my God, that is so fascinating. He's like the ultimate gay pop stan turned purveyor. That is like the he best is. framing ever. And it that yes. really comes across, as we were saying, like that kind of comes back to the competence, like not the greatest innovator, but the great practitioner or student of it in a sense. Yes. One thing to know is that very early on, he was very interested in being famous. And in 1998, there was this interview and he said, I didn't want to be rich. I just wanted to be filthily famous. Mm. It was a feeling not listened to. It was lots of feelings of low self-worth, all the kind of screwed up things that go together to make someone who becomes well known. It's the things that are Mm. missing that make you a star. It's not the things that you have. And George was very, very good. I mean, in a not at all kind of showy, I'm a student of pop, and not right. in a gaga, I'm, yes, I'm doing right. this and this is like my dissertation <laughs> on everything I've learned. He just yeah. kind of did Does that it. without signaling that he was doing that. Totally. He was just uncommonly totally. articulate about this stuff and plain spoken about it without seeming overly academic or mm. like he was almost making a show of- Yeah, not trying too you hard. Know, not trying too hard. He just just did it. And that, I think, is another theme of his. I was just going to say, I'm fascinated by what you bring up about his expressed desire to be famous at a young age, because that also feels like a really definitional trait of his pop trajectory is sort of like the embrace of the desire for fame and then the absolute shying away, backing away, hiding from it, essentially, like right as he achieved the biggest extent that he ever did. So, and his acknowledgement of where that's coming from in him, this sort of wounded place or whatever, like it makes sense, because I think a lot of people do think fame will heal and then discover that fame (laughs) destroys actually. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. I don't think Madonna is as famous as she is if her mom didn't die, right? Like that that was like a a major event. They all have this. Something has to be truly wrong with you to want to be famous on this particular level. I really do believe that. I do believe that too and I think that's absolutely true now more than ever. I mean, you can give pop stars of the 80s a kind of pass for the naivety of it all. Now, we're inundated with stories of how fame destroys. I mean, even Elvis, you, you know, you could look at Elvis and be yeah. like, okay. Or Marilyn Monroe or any of these people. I mean, yeah, look. It's true. This is the, it's always this is the other thing, Rich, that I was thinking just related to George is like, we lost an entire generation of 80s pop stars, basically. I mean, they uh, all superstars. died so young. All of them. We have what? We have Janet Madonna 
are left. Whitney, George, Michael, Prince, they're all gone. Yeah. This shit is fucked. And I mean, it really is. And like that hole that you're searching to fill with fame. And when you realize that you can't fill it with fame, like what else do you go to to fill it with? And that can be the downfall of so many of these people, it feels like to me, just tangentially. So you're saying George really wants to become famous. How does he end up discovering his musical talent and like creating that as a pursuit? He meets Andrew Ridgely mm-hmm. when they're in grade school at this grade school called Bushy Meads. They're both 12 years old at the time and mm. they bond heavily. Andrew Ridgely at the time, by the way, is the super charismatic. I mean, if you were to say at that point, oh, these two are going to start a group, Andrew Ridgely would have been the lead singer. It would have been mm. no doubt about it. George at this time was so gawky and insecure. And, you know, he had this very hard to pronounce name and all of this. And Andrew Ridgely is just the cool guy. The story is like the teacher on the first day of school, George is starting a new school and the teacher says, you know, who will show George around? Or I didn't mm-hmm. know if he was going by George at that time. I think he was going by Jorg. And Andrew raises his hand to do it. Mm. So he just immediately, they spotted each other. And then they have this pop nerds relationship. They're in the new romantic scene. And they just kind of build it up from there. So they start messing around. George Mm -hmm. gets a gig DJing at this, like... The way that it's described reminded me of like a dinner theater. It's like a place where people are eating, but he's a DJ there (laughs) at at this place called the Bel Air, which was soul sapping, Mm -hmm. according to Ridgely. But, you know, as they go on, they form this kind of ska band called The Executive. Andrew Ridgely's brother was in that band, Paul. And then that kind of like falls apart and George and Andrew still have these ideas. So they create a demo and George actually plays some of that at the Bel Air mm-hmm. and sees there's a response. And so this gives them hope that like, oh, maybe there is something here. And they're like teenagers at this time, like 17, 18. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that they were still teenagers when their first album came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you feel like is the sort of like musical inspiration behind Wham? You've talked a little bit about him being into the Supremes when he was growing up and we've touched on his fascination with black musical forms in Motown, et cetera. Do you have a sense of like how they're envisioning themselves musically as a duo at that point? I don't know because they start out like real unexpectedly, right? right? I mean, like their first three singles are rap songs, you know, in this kind of early toasting kind of Sugar Hill gang Mm -hmm. wannabe. I said a hip hop. The first line of Wham Rap, hey everybody take a look at me, I've got street credibility. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. Hey everybody take a look at me, I've got street credibility. I may not have a job, but I have a good time with the boys that I meet down on the line. I wrote, is this a joke? <laughs> I mean... You know, George actually did claim that half of the time they were taking the piss. I think that that must have been in that category. This makes Rapture look like Rakim. I mean, and keep in mind, too, it's these two twinks with puffy hair and British, and he's Mm -hmm. announcing it couldn't be more perfect. Hey, everybody, take a look at me. Hello, I've got street credibility. It's literally Iggy Azalea saying, first things first, I'm the (laughs) real. Seriously. So it's very kind of strange. I mean, that song was a reference to Wigwam Bam by Sweet. Bam, 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 
It was just kind of this chant that Ridgely did on the dance floor, wham, bam, I am the man. And George apparently says that's a great name for a group. So they develop it from there. Is it weird or like innovative for two white British men to be incorporating rap elements into their pop music in 1983? I think so. I mean, I don't know anybody else who was. I'm sure that like some other people were or whatever. It wasn't very pop. Rapper's Delight was obviously everywhere and there was like stuff here and there, but Rapture is a good example of basically as close as the American charts got to rap for a really long time. So it's a very strange choice. It is very, very odd, but obviously it sets the bar for this appropriation of black music that has continued throughout George Michael's career and that at times he's extremely explicit about. He will talk about the fact that he took elements of black music and did this Mm -hmm. and that on Listen Without Prejudice. And Mm -hmm. Faith was also a black music album, according Mm -hmm. to him. So they start out doing it like that. So this is all pre-record deal. They don't have a record deal at this point. No, they don't have a record deal, but they get one. They get like a beginner's record deal of like singles, basically. I believe Wham Rap flops at first. Mm -hmm. Young Guns go for it. Then it does marginally better. And then they got on top of the pops and then they become the sensation and then they re-release Wham Rap and it becomes a right. On the Wham Rap single, G. Panos was credited as the oh. songwriter and George saw that and changed his mind and said, I have to be George Michael. And in Andrew Ridgely's book, he explained that George Michael is basically an alter ego that allows George Michael to get over his insecurity and really serve a la Sasha Fierce, let's say. Oh. A-, a layer of psychological <laughs> armor. Yeah. Yeah, so as you mentioned, this record eventually does make them stars in the UK. It's called Fantastic. It comes out in 1983. This record was so... I don't even know how to describe it. It's almost silly. I could, it was almost like hard to take it seriously and not that great in my personal opinion. And yet so listenable. Like I was totally like engaged and happy to be listening to it the whole time. Even though I found the production to be incredibly like tinny. I think notable that this is the one George Michael project that I don't think he actually produced. I think there are outside producers working on this. I mean, it almost, sounds like Casio keyboard funk or something like that. Like it sounds like cheaply made. I perceived it initially as like being vapid, but then as I went back and read about it, apparently all of these songs have like social messages that I didn't totally realize at first. Yeah, and I don't quite understand the social system (laughs) that was at work in the UK, but essentially what I understand Wham Rap to be advocating is, I mean, the chorus is, Wham, bam, I am a man. Job or no job, you can't tell me that I'm not. Do you enjoy what you do? If not, just stop. Don't stay there and rot. 
And I think what they're advocating is going on public assistance. <laughs> Apparently there was like British right to work laws that were like really controversial during the Thatcher administration. <laughs> and they're like yes, making yes. some sort of social commentary song about that. But like that, they are. Did, that did not hit me at no, all. Like no. If no one tells you that you're not getting like what's going on vibes from this music. <laughs> Absolutely. But it did actually win them some street credibility. And yeah. they were, I think their trajectory was that initially people were really impressed by the socially aware young white rappers and then i think what turned it around was club tropicana where they're walking around in speedos and they're very skinny twink bodies at this yeah. pool in this thing club tropicana is almost evocative of copacabana you know it's almost like yes, that or level like of cheese. chintzy debarge yeah 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 exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> That's a huge hit. You know, they're all kind of huge hits. I think some perspective. So in that Freedom Uncut documentary, Naomi Campbell says, I'll be honest, I was a culture club fan and we used to throw eggs at the Wham fans. So I think pretty <laughs> early on, it became clear that they were not the cool group to listen to. I really think this is a really important point because one thing that I wanted to bring up at the top of the conversation is George Michael's career also felt like one overly long bid for credibility that like was both yeah. successful but then I also think maybe sunk some of his later period music in terms of just the maudlinness the self-seriousness like it really felt like because Wham was taken so unseriously or seen as such a joke he really spent a lot of his career trying to be like no guys actually like I'm worthwhile as a serious artist and serious musician so I feel like that's a really important little anecdote to share with everybody here because I think we need to understand that like this music is huge but like very derided it seems like to me yes yes especially in the u.s you know i mean they were successful at least in the uk and they at least had that early sort of respect the rolling stone review of fantastic it, by the way it, that album does come out in the u.s but apparently it's very kind of like half-hearted and it's right. not distributed well it's not really promoted they right. were on american bandstand george michael and andrew ridgely put together this group and the ladies, I believe, gathered and joined a little bit later than when they first started. If I am not mistaken, within four weeks of putting this thing together, they got a, a record label deal, and they are hot. I mentioned a gold record in England. I think that denotes a half a million sales. That's a lot. And they are just knocking everybody on their head over there. When I was walking behind here, I heard them singing. I said, sounds like a rap record from Detroit, Michigan or something. <laughs> then I look over and I say, this is an English group. This is very unusual. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Wham! One of the singles creeped into like the top 60. Mm -hmm. The Rolling Stone review from the September 15th, 1983 issue said, for music that aspires to danceability, the album is surprisingly lightweight. It's bottomless funk, which seems mm -hmm. odd for a record that devotes a whole song to the joys of a bass line. Probably mm -hmm. the biggest problem with Wham is that the group lacks a really distinctive vocalist. George Michael's earnest whine is as synthetic and overly familiar as the cheap keyboards so prevalent nowadays. What do you think of that? I read that too. 
What did you think of that? Well, I I could understand that, but I think that that was probably overly dismissive. I mean, George was definitely developing his voice at this time. And what's wild is he grows so much as an artist between these two albums, you know, yes, they're, they're so, so different. But, you know, early on, uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but there was some sense early on that like he couldn't really sing. I was surprised, I'll tell you by when I read the review, because I thought the one clear strength of this record to me is that he sounds great for the most part to me. Yeah. I found that review yeah. kind of dissonant to me, but I still hear George Michael sounding very competent, I guess maybe the word. I always think of his voice as like this golden voice, whatever. Yes. But I think at least in the James Gavin book, he talks about the fact that like George's talent didn't leap out to anybody initially. You know, it wasn't even right. obvious that he would have such a strong voice. So I think he was still developing it. I will say that these songs in general aren't extremely challenging. They're kind of, yeah, I mean, I guess like a falsetto is a little bit challenging, but in general, he's not singing the way that he would come to sing no. very shortly. So no, it, they weren't really a showcase for his vocalist. They're just kind of silly dance songs. All right. So they move pretty quickly into making their second record, which is their major breakthrough for all intents and purposes. 1984's Make It Big. Big shifts going on here, which is that George writes and produces all of this music essentially like by himself and like sings the entire out. Al- I mean, is this functionally yes. like a George Michael solo album with Andrew Ridgely on guitar more or less? Basically, Andrew Ridgely said that he did at this point backing vocals and guitar and that he was a sounding mm-hmm. board and a creative sidekick. Happily or like relegated? Do you feel like he's happy in that? In his book, he is extremely at peace with even the fact that he took a step back. He just didn't want to interfere with his process. George was moving at lightning speed, mm-hmm. he says, And it was just like, get out of the way and do George's thing. Let's talk about the music on Make It Big. And I guess we can obviously get into it by talking about Wham's signature song, the signature song from this record, the record that breaks them in America, which is Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Talk to me about what this song is, what it's about, how it sounds. I guess Andrew originally kind of wrote this one too. It's based on a letter he wrote to his mom because they were still living at home at this point, even though they had this hit record in the UK. And the Motown influence is heavily announced. A straight 50s, 60s soul, R&B, pop, Motown homage with synthetic 80s instrumentation. Yes. It's still so bordering that line between like silly. There is something supremely goofy about this song. Oh yeah, it's definitely cheese. Like it was cheese that worked because I guess they yes. weren't rapping. And it's just, I don't know. I, it's also cheese that worked just because I really think that as unspecific and as much of a cop-out as it might sound, again and again, it's about the melodies with George. It's about mm-hmm. his impeccable mm-hmm. ear for creating earworms. And he did this for a good 10 years, you know? Yeah. And that's what it is. It's just an undeniable song. Wake me up before you go-go. It works. I was even thinking like, what an epic, great first lyric is. You put the boom boom into my heart. The simplest, stupidest thing, but you will never forget that as long as you live. And I also feel like some of the ways they transcend the silliness is that amazing part at the end of the chorus where he jumps into the falsetto and says, I want to hit that. 
The way that hits yeah, yeah, paired yeah. with the church organ gives it an almost gospel-y feel, weirdly enough, right there at the end. What is the impetus to make so many songs about nothingness for George in particular in this phase of his career as someone that went on to really want to make songs that were so like self-interrogative and that were so digging in. I couldn't help but frame it just as a gay person through this lens of where was he in that journey? Did he not want people to really look into him in that way? And that's what kind of leads to a song like Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, which is about absolutely nothing. It's like pure distraction at the veneer of something like very well made and manicured and looks good and whatever, but like showing you absolutely like nothing about who this person is at all. Or even a concept. I mean, the song is basically abstract. Like who's waking who up? Like what's going on? Why does he need to be woken up? Like, and who's doing it? You know, like um, no idea. It's like it's nonsensical. But you know, to answer your question, I think a lot of that comes from the scholarship of pop. Mm. At one point, and I don't know where. And again, this is from the James Gavin book. There's a quote from George Michael: "I've stopped trying to pretend that I've got anything important to say or anything that needs mm. an angry young man to say it." And this is Wham era. Mm. I think this is post Wham rap. We're putting back yeah. into pop the idea that records should be there for three and a half minutes and buzzing around your head for a while and not much else. So what they're giving is exactly what they intended to give, this pop, froth, nothingness, you know? But that couldn't be more oppositional to the George Michael that comes into fruition mere years after this. That's what's so fascinating about it. Like, yeah, no, it could be more in opposition to this concept. It's this yeah. like heavily thought about concept of like, how can I right, right. <laughs> show as little work as possible? How can I put off that I've done no work on this, that this is just a froth that manifested itself somehow? Well, it's really interesting in terms of what you were talking about earlier vis-a-vis Lady Gaga because it's like as you said the scholarliness was so baked into the cake and like subterranean as opposed to Lady Gaga having a David Bowie tattoo on her side or whatever you know like saying like I love pop history it was just executed as opposed to spoken of and that's what the way that he wanted it to be the video I think we should touch on right the video for this is quite iconic the choose life t-shirts that they're wearing which like is that emblematic of what you're talking about like choose joy like what does choose life mean because I know that that set off a huge trend of people buying that shirt. It feels as equally meaningless to me as anything else. Like, it just feels like a slogan, in a sense. They were the work of Catherine E. Hamnett, a British retail clothing designer whose two-tone apparel, stark as a tabloid headline, bore activist slogans. This one was intended as an anti-war message, but other causes had adopted it, including drug prevention and safe sex uh-huh. no matter it marked wham as a band who cared is james gavin's assessment yeah, of it but that's so funny in contrast to everything we're talking about like, in what way is this song have anything to do with an anti-war message with anti-drug Nothing. message like what the fuck it's just like totally vapid yeah exactly it's a gesture it's an empty gesture or is it like a studied pop star gesture because it's like in that way of like okay well like pop stars need a message and let's have a slogan on a t-shirt It's almost like putting the facade of the pieces together without having to have any of the meaning or impetus behind it. It's just like an action that a studied pop star thing. I don't know. Maybe that's yes. So before we talk about, I think, what might be the most important song on this record, which is Careless Whisper, what's happening on the other two big singles from this record, Everything She Wants and The Original Freedom? Well, The Original Freedom is kind of Motown redux. 
George was very openly closeted to Andrew at the time, so he said mm-hmm. that hearing that song made him feel like it was some kind of commentary on his life. I don't want your freedom as a rejection of coming out, you know? Right. And then Everything She Wants is like a very accomplished slice of post-disco boogie. I mean, it sounds like a Reggie Lucas production. was a very big hit with R&B audiences. I think it peaked just outside the top 10 on the R&B chart or maybe just inside of it. But it was like an early indication that black audiences had the capacity to embrace George Michael. And it's kind of a nasty song. It's almost proto Weekend or Chris mm. Brown in the mm. way that they have like songs about just or maybe future about just like being yes. shitty men. And so now you tell me that you're having my baby. I'll tell you that I'm happy if you want me to. The song is like, like all about like whining like oh god i'm doing all this work for you and now you're having my child is it about the sort of misery of heteronormative romance and kind of feeling yeah. trapped by a woman i wonder like how much that could be like an expression of george's i mean of course i'm like doing some text reading here i couldn't help myself but i was literally definitely. like this song definitely feels like it's sung from the perspective of a man who feels trapped in his heterosexual relationship which is yes. vivid coming from a closeted gay man i also think important to note here that this i think was the first song in the process that he wrote and produced entirely by himself because the engineer this guy Porter said I have a quote that I found from him that said I think this was when George started to realize that if he wanted to he could do everything by himself he could uh-huh. cut out all other people and all other ideas and I think George is kind of like the recluse song craftsman like literally creating all of these songs by himself which is like what his solo career seems like it's somewhat defined by to me is born in the process of making this song like he's clearly uncovering the depths of his talents like in real time as Wham is like exploding it feels like yes I think everything she wants is the song that has aged the best it still yes. sounds super sleek and yeah. modern to me yeah uh, still works on the dance floor the production on this record overall is significantly better than the first one like it's Definitely. the other one literally I was like this sounds like it was made on a Casio keyboard like this has some like real shiny like 80s synth poppy well made pop music let's talk about the most most important song on this record, I think, which is Careless Whisper, which is marketed in some markets as the first George Michael solo single. It's quite different sounding than anything Wham! has made to this point. How would you describe Careless Whisper as a song? I mean, just that saxophone that just like <laughs> takes you by the ears and rubs your face in the 80s cheese Literally, that sax riff is 1984 in oral form. Like, 100%. You know, there were certain songs that I would hear as a kid yeah. and they would just make me feel bad. You know, <laughs> Careless Whisper just always made me feel bad. So th- the sentiment is just, it's almost like looking at the sun in a way. It's so yeah. emotional. It's so emotive that it's like, oh mm-hmm. God, I don't know if you should be telling us this.
It's like melodramatic. That sax riff is like you're immediately in some sort of neo-noir. Right. I kept thinking about Body Heat. Every time that song comes on for some yes. reason, I like have this weird association with, is it in Body no, Heat or am I just making that up? Like, I don't think it's in Body Heat, but it, it's very much of that time, yes. Yeah. But as you said, yes. it's kind of the introduction to the George Michael that we meet on a lot of his solo music, which is not this vapid, wham, meaningless, Motown riffing music. It's this super sad and like broken balladry because yeah. it's about essentially that he broke somebody's heart or someone and then he's never gonna be able to love again because of like the guilt of what he's done essentially. Yes. Uh, it seems like it. I don't know. He seems scorned but it feels like he scorned himself I yeah. guess. <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm never, never gonna, gonna dance, dance again. again the way I dance with <laughs> Yes. Guilty feet have got no rhythm. Oh. He sounds incredible on this song, though. He does. He does. It's oh the most God. notable vocal performance, and I think it's what made people take him seriously as a singer. It's still his number one song on fucking Spotify by a long shot. I believe it. It's fascinating to see this song as the turning point, I think, in everything, because like, if you're going to connect what's going to come next in his solo career to like the frivolity of the Wham! thing, like this is like feels like just a totally important puzzle piece in George's discovery of who he was as an artist, to the extent that I almost feel like the Wham! stuff is divorced from who the genuine George Michael is as an artist in a sense. I don't know. This yeah. song feels like the real starting point of meaning. Yes, yes. And it seemed like everybody was on board with that idea because like we said, it was released under his name in a lot of territories and it just felt like the time to launch. And keep in mind too, and I don't know how true this is, but Andrew Ridgely talks in his book about the fact that Wham! was always envisioned as a short-term project. The fact that the group would break up was totally inevitable mm. and and so it doesn't seem like he met this news or idea with any resistance. It was just like, okay, go. And if he really was that gracious, that's the most pop move of them all. Okay, mm. the world needs this superstar untethered from this boy band to really blossom and, and deliver the pop that people need. I'm going to step out of the way and allow you to do that. Again, a scholar of pop did what he did for the culture. You have to respect he it. Made the ultimate sacrifice. I did. <laughs> While counting his residuals from writing credits on Careless Whisper and Wake Me Up Before You Go Go or whatever for the rest of his life. Absolutely. So obviously, Make It Big is a humongous hit. Wake Me Up Before You Go Go is number one in both the UK and the US. Careless Whisper as well. Freedom is a number one hit in the UK, a number three hit here. Everything She Wants is another number one hit here. So this record is Crazy. gigantic. It's huge album. I think it would be nice for us to touch down briefly in like, there was no option for George Michael to be out at this point like would he have made it do you think not where he was headed right, right. i mean yeah, he yeah. could have had like a decent career whatever but you referenced before his quote about wanting to be as big as michael jackson or prince right i don't think that he was gonna risk it at that point and it really was a risk obviously Clearly. and this is also post the dawn of aids too right which causes a lot of stigma and yeah. people talk about like the 70s being a point where like gay men were becoming more visible and and it was becoming more and more socially acceptable. And then AIDS happened and it was referendum on that. From what you understand, he is out in his private life at this point. Like to himself. Yeah. Like he's having gay sex and there's people in his life that know that he's gay. Yes. He does have beards though. 
including what is her name kathy jeong mm. who's in the i want your sex video that's oh. that was his girlfriend in real life and i say mm. girlfriend in quotes so he is engaging with the facade while being well aware of it obviously okay so wham as you said has what they describe to be the most amicable breakup in pop history following I mean, this gigantic record they put out this final music from the edge of heaven which i guess is yes. the name of their greatest hits record which features another run of amazing hits including i think most importantly last christmas which is like yes. the greatest christmas song besides the mariah song maybe yeah it, and it definitely always felt that way too i distinctly remember that song being new and omnipresent and then every christmas after so last christmas came into the world as a standard basically yes, right And functions, I think, weirdly, unlike a lot of Christmas songs, well on its own without needing to be tied to the holiday. Like, I would listen to Definitely. Last Christmas and not need it to be Christmas time. I listened to it the other day at the gym when I was listening to that last Wham! album. Because there's also, like, great songs on that, including Edge of Heaven, which I think is awesome. It's another kind of Motown-y, yeah. very much in the tradition of freedom, I think. It's a mm. little bit less goofy. So Wham! Go out on a high note. Their last concert is known as their last concert. It's at Wembley Stadium. is a huge, huge show. And that obviously opens the door for yeah. George's solo career. So at what point does he go into the making of Faith? And how do you understand like what his sort of aesthetic and artistic goals are for the making of his debut solo record? I think that it's just right from Wham! into the recording of Faith. Right. We've referenced this before, but this is what he said in Freedom Uncut. Mm -hmm. If I was looking for happiness, this was the wrong road, but I don't think there was any way I could have controlled my ego enough to have stopped me exploring the possibility of being the biggest selling artist in the world. So I went full gusto into creating a new character, one that I thought would be resonant enough to stand up there next to Madonna and Jackson and Prince. Uh -huh. And I guess I did that very effectively alongside what was a very, very commercial record. So he's shooting for the stars right and we should point out that like this is the mid 80s so we're dealing with pretty much peak records from all of these people at this point we're yes like post thriller post purple rain true blue kind of height of these sort of big concept, emblematic pop records events of the 1980s. Yes. He's got those in his mind, obviously. What do you think are like the aesthetic goals of this? Because I think that it's a pretty diverse sounding album. I'm wondering like Definitely. what you think he was sort of setting out to do on this album from an aesthetic standpoint. Was that the idea that he was going to like present himself in sort of numerous different genre guises? It seems like it. I mean, it seems like cast a wide net, right? Yeah. Kind of like proto Love Angel Music Baby, you know, <laughs> proto post. It was kind of like united by its lack of unification and mm. its desire to wow as wide an audience as possible. Certainly with I Want Your Sex, he, yeah. he admitted that it was a rather limp attempt 
to do a Prince. Well, I love I Want Your Sex. Same. I think it is a wild thing to write and name a song called I Want Your Sex and then have that be your solo debut officially. Like, yeah. That was his first single from this album. Why would it be advantageous for George Michael at this period in his career to release a song called I Want Your Sex, it's explicitly about sex, and also a song that is nodding so directly at Prince? Like, what function is that serving? It was a time when widely consumed pop culture was becoming more and more sexual via huge figures like Prince and Madonna. And so I think this is him throwing his hat in the ring. He uses a lindrum throughout the record. It's very prominent here, Mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, Prince's go-to drum for a lot of his records. Yes. And also he uses that pitched up vocal that, you know, Prince hadn't actually developed the Camille character, at least not for the public at this point, because Sign of the Times came out that year. And I think those were the first Camille recordings Mm -hmm, that were mm -hmm, released. mm -hmm. But certainly on Erotic City, Prince had done that. So there is definitely a sense that he's doing a whole kind of Prince thing. It is another goofy song. It's a different kind of goofy. It's like self-serious goofiness or something like that. Yeah. It was written about a man, apparently, Tony Garcia, who Mm. sounds like this fuckboy. He lived across the road from him in Saint-Tropez. He would party with him. He's described in the Gavin book as a swarthy, curly-haired, handsome French playboy and occasional record producer with whom he had spent glamorous times in Saint-Tropez and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Although it was a largely unrequited crush, Michael Mm -hmm. took it seriously. Mm. He had fallen in love for the first time, he acknowledged later, and it banished any lingering doubt about his sexuality. I knew I was gay, gay, gay. Interesting. Well, the video presents a very different route. In the actual song, you hear the lyric, sex is best when it's one-on-one. You sure do. But also, he writes on Kathy Jeong on her body with lipstick, explore monogamy. So this was the idea of like, well, we don't want to, as AIDS is raging, promote promiscuity. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to like do a little bit of a corrective in order to sell this song properly. Mm -hmm. There was like a disclaimer at the beginning of the video when it was on MTV, basically explaining this. It's funny to think of him like secretly cruising at night and then going on stage and singing sex is best when it's one on one. (laughs) Oh, exactly. Like, he came to walk that back in a big way. It's so fascinating because, like, I love what you were saying about, like, how this song is silly, but I feel like it's silly in the most, like, it's, like, multiple parts, and it's nine minutes long, and, like, you know, it morphs from one thing into this other thing, and it's, like, clearly supposed to be this auteur statement that still retains some of, like, the silliness of a Wham song. Sex is natural. Sex is fun. Like, it's comical in that way, and yet it feels still, like, super largesque. 
going on here yeah. in the pursuit of this idiotic song that also feels like as many women pop stars have done in the past turning to overt sexuality to signal adultness and to signal a new phase of your career totally like, it's doing that turn that cliche turn in like the most George Michaelian kind of way so I Want Your Sex is a number two hit in the US and a number three hit in the UK and that's the single that precedes this record and then we go into like a literal panoply of smash music the second single is the title track which i think is still to this day probably considered his signature song what's going on there i mean an entirely different kind of sonic palette and universe on that particular record on faith yeah and also the faith is conversant with his past in wham the melody of freedom played by like a church organ opens that song so he's saying out with the old in with the new Not a lot of bottom end, a lot of treble, and mm. that acoustic guitar is right in your face. Yes. This is very like light rockabilly thing that he's doing. And I think that probably, you know, beyond the fact that like every single part of this song is a hook. The video is really what pushed it over the top. It's the iconic leather jacket and stubble Mm. and sunglasses and the jukebox and and his butt and the hair. That quaff. And he also has hanging from his left shoulder a string of pearls, which he later said was his way of signaling to the audience that like he didn't want people to think that he thought he could get away with acting butch. Like it was Mm. his kind of wink, you know, which is notable because he was really closeted. So the fact that he also, like, the anything. image does have the patina of the gay man doing the sort of classic male pose, like the leather jacket and the, like, he's kind of doing like a greaser look. Yeah, well, it's very 80s clone in a way, too, yeah, with the jeans right. and the leather and yeah. all of that, you know, right. definitely like a pseudo butch type of thing, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And yet so not butch because it's so manicured. It's, yes, you know, it's, exactly. It's, it's that perfectly gay. So yeah. gay, you know, but I also feel like a theme of this record perhaps is something that many of these 80 pop stars are obsessed with, which is the interplay between religion and sex. I mean, the song is called Faith, you know, and I feel like he does come back to this themes of, like, because he's so interested in gospel music and he's so interested in a lot of these, like, classically Christian-oriented ideas. Even when I think about the single father figure and, like, you hear the word father and you immediately think about, like, a priest or whatever. Like, there is something that goes through this music that has to do with both the idea that he's, like, trying to convey a sexy image and also sort of this mix of sort of like religious iconography and feeling like in some of this music too. Yeah, I believe that he's wearing a cross in his ear, like a dangly yes, Bushwicky right. cross. You and know, the it would organ come to that be... opens the song. The organ, It sounds like yeah. it could be in a church, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's another banger of an opening lyric. I guess it would be yes. nice if I could touch your body, 
what a great lyric. That is like one of the all-time great opening lyrics. And also kind of similarly, as we were talking about to Everything She Wants, about a lover who tied him down. I'm always interested in like maybe some of the ways he's framing like heterosexual love as a person. Like, yes. Like, I feel like that's a theme he also comes back to a lot. Let's talk about Father Figure, which is yet another smash hit from this record. And yet another, like, a seemingly, like, an entirely other guys. It's like, we've got, like, the fucking Prince sex anthem, funk anthem. We've got the Bo Diddley, like, <laughs> jangly rock song. And then we've got Father Figure. Which, how would you describe that one? It's, like, one of those kind of, like, atmospheric, mid-tempo, adult mm-hmm. contemporary things, yep. you know? Yeah, I, totally. I feel like it's a little bit, like, cut from the cloth of, like, a Phil Collins Totally! Oh my god, the... that's so true. another religious sex something sacred in your eyes what is he talking about i don't know like what does he mean i can be your father figure i've listened to this like four times when i was thinking about preparing for this and i was just like it's kind of a creepy conceit like is he sort of like expressing his desire to be his lover's father figure is that the idea yeah yeah i mean i thought that like he had someone with daddy issues that he decided he would fill that role for this happens with women but also men and you know there's a trope within gay life of like you know an absent father figure and so many men fulfill that need through gay relationships so again it feels like a wink for those in the know if you know then you know and then also like the obsession like in the father figure music video with the supermodels like i'm just like yes. that's so fucking gay totally. very gay like and totally. that continues on through many of his music videos it does it does the other single that we should really touch on here which i think maybe is like one of his most gorgeous songs ever another smash is one more try like a, just yeah. an absolute stunner of a ballad so Again, with the pathos, it's an incredibly anguished song. Mm. And again, there's this sense of teacher. There's yes, this right. sense of power that he's singing about. Yes, right. And it's so well written. It, yeah. it reminds me of Careless Whisper because he often takes these perspective in these ballads about like what the pain of this now is going to mean for me moving down the road is like a thing that he like kind of returns <laughs> to thematically a lot. And this That's is another true. song where he is essentially like talking about how like he'll never be able to enter another relationship again because of like how deeply hurt he is. But then is like beautifully buttoned up at the end with the lyric where he says something like, but maybe I will give it one more try. He kind of like spends the whole song going like, I'm not gonna be able to do this again. And then ends it on this note of resigned hope at the end. I'm so cold inside. Just one more try. 
This record is one of the definitive blockbusters of the 1980s. It sells like 20 million copies and has like so many hits on it. What's your perception of like following Faith's massive success of where George Michael sits in the sort of pop pecking order? Like where does he fit in with the other major stars of the late 80s? Is he the biggest of the bunch? Is he on par with all of the other pop figures we've been talking about? There is a period of time where George Michael is the biggest pop star at the moment, I would say. And it's a result of Faith. It's kind of like 87, 88, the Faith tour. That's his zenith. And basically, there's no one that can touch him. Prince is already on the decline at this point, just in terms of his popularity. As critically acclaimed as Side of the Times was, it just, Purple Rain was his peak. You know, Madonna is still obviously a huge, huge force. She's still on the ascent. Yeah, yeah. she doesn't peak until, I would say her peak is like 90. Michael Jackson is on the decline, but still obviously a major force. Janet is still ascending. What's truly amazing is that he's just established himself as such at all. It just seemed right. like such a an unlikely thing to happen. And he did it. And again, it was the songs that took him there. Meaning know? coming I mean, out of Wham! And like what how they were seen. Coming out of Wham! Yeah, exactly. As much as his ambition fueled it, I don't think anybody would have truly predicted that he would blow up to the extent that he did. Yeah, And he couldn't have if it weren't so good. The fact of the matter is that George Michael at his peak is just undeniable. If you like pop music... I mean, show me yeah. the flaw. No, you know? there's none. It is a perfect album, honestly. I really, like, it's, I, I, one, it's one of those records that you just listen to and you're just like, damn, like every minute of this is a thrill. It's like, just like one of those things, it's almost easy to take for granted at this point. Yeah, right. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's like the stuff that everybody liked. No, that's the stuff that everybody liked because it's so fucking good that yeah. like no one could deny it. <laughs> that's why that album was popular. The production sounds still to this day, absolutely incredible. Like it's so rich and detailed and yet so economical. It's so well-made. And and that's really not easy to find in an album that was made in 1987, totally. especially a dance inflected album. And I do think that like some of it sounds better than others, sure, but sure, sure. True Blue, as much as people love that uh, record, uh, like that song counter. does, yeah, it does not sound mm-hmm. anything but like 1980, that's not a timeless album. No. And so much of Faith is. Mm-hmm. So for him to pull that off in this incredibly commercial sphere with no avant-garde inclinations at all, right. to just like make this like really direct, pristine pop album mm-hmm. that somehow is able to still sound fresh is truly incredible. Does this give him the critical credibility that he's after? Yeah. Yeah. Faith was, I mean, it won album of the year. Mm-hmm. It was very well reviewed. There's basically no antagonism, at least in terms of like the critical establishment at this point. There's just, again, it's undeniable. So he doesn't follow this record up. It takes him three years. He releases his second album, Listen Without Prejudice in 1990. I felt like the title could be pertaining to the fact that he's not making faith style music. I mean, he's essentially oh, like totally. taken the entire formula that was so monumentally successful and sort of chucked it in the garbage can, not just in terms of the aesthetics of this album, which we should obviously get into now, but also in terms of like his retreating from the spotlight. I mean, he yeah, went yeah. from like making this sort of like platonic ideal of a pop star just image wise on faith. We were talking about it, the leather jacket, the white t-shirt, the face, you know, the sex symbolness of the whole thing. And then just sort of went like, fuck you to all of that. That shit and just like went in an t- entirely other direction. So he was really yes. encouraging folks with the title, I thought maybe to like try to accept him once again in a new guise or something like that. That's definitely how it feels. Like I think that's the most obvious sort of reading. That's what I always thought it was. But supposedly Listen Without Prejudice was a direct comment on the way people were talking about his race and 
what he was mm. projecting in his music in terms of his music's references and the appropriation there. But it very much seems like a statement to listen to the music with no prejudgment to kind of get that idea of George Michael that you've had in your head out of your head mm -hmm. because he finds himself miserable at the height of his fame. Mm. The faith tour was apparently like really, really hard for him. And the loneliness of being surrounded in a room full of people that paid so much to see you versus, you know, once you step off of that stage really affected him profoundly. And he decided at this juncture, at this very early juncture in his superstardom, that he was not cut out for it. So Yeah, which is so interesting, you know, I because when you really look back on it, you think of George Michael as one of these sort of titanic 80s pop forces, but the reality of the situation is it was really just faith where yeah. he was that. Like, he was obviously still a huge artist and he still made hit music post-Faith, but, like, he released very little music following Faith. His legacy almost, like, is larger in stature in my mind than, like, yeah. when I actually went and, like, looked back at what the run was, like, really like here. Because, literally, if it took Madonna seven albums to pivot out of her mainstream instincts, like, he was literally, like, goodbye, like, after this one run, which is really interesting and I can't help but think, and this could be projected again, like, what's it like to become famous and known for something that feels like it's not really who you are? You know, I I, totally. I wonder what a mental effects that the burden of closeted life was having upon him at that point. What's going on on Listen Without Prejudice? Like, what are his aesthetic goals here and how does this music come out? Firstly, in literal and visual aesthetics, he vows to not appear in any of the videos for this. Right. He doesn't want his name on the cover. He doesn't want his picture on the cover. There is a picture of him on the inside. The the record company ends up putting a sticker on the cover to say George Michael, <laughs> kind of going around him. Right. And so it's this idea to like kind of divorce this image, which he explicitly details in the most iconic song, I think, from this album, Freedom 90. The most iconic and yet the most red herring, I feel. Oh, yeah, no, I agree because that song is, you know, it's heavily influenced by the British dance music, kind of like yes. ravey. I mean, directly Primal Screams Loaded, I think, was his source track, which came out earlier that year, actually. Mm. Ravy, Acid right. House, Pop, A La Primal Scream, right. or The Happy Mondays, or a Manchester-y kind of thing. Rich, all I can say about this song is this is like top 25 pop songs of all time. Like... He tapped into something here that was like completely otherworldly. This song is like when pop music literally becomes spiritual. Like I, I'm, I, I no, I, I agree. I'm, I'm literally like this. Like makes me believe in God. The theme of that song is sometimes the clothes don't make the man. Right. The song is autobiographical. It takes you through his yes. early days in Wham yep. and his teeny bopper fans. Mm -hmm. And now he's got to make himself happy. So right. he's revising his career and he's showing by not showing as he's telling. Yes. He's talking, he's espousing all of these principles, but he's actually putting them into action, which is something that's pretty rare in pop. Mm. It's a lot of kind of talking or complaining about fame while not really doing anything right. about it. <laughs> because what are you going to do about it? You could take a risk with your career, but who has the balls to do that? Well, George Michael did. I 
And also, it can be seen as kind of not relatable to sing about these kind of things. And yet, this song That's feels true. so incredibly universal somehow, while still being so specific in a way almost that none of his exactly. music to this point has felt. You know, we've talked about the ways that he seems like he's kind of obscured his personality in a lot of his previous music. Like, this song really feels like a breakthrough moment where, like, yes, it's got the sort of shininess of some of the Faith singles, but, like, it feels like he's really processing some deep internal conflict within himself through the making of this record. point about it being so specific at universal is just some kind of alchemy like that's art that's what art does and it's the magic of it but who can't relate to kind of like looking around and being like i need to actually make this change i mean this is like a part and parcel of the human condition you know and this song actually reaches for what the title says i mean this song engenders freedom like it sends shows up my spine can't talk about the song without talking about the video either yeah. which is you know full of the supermodels of their day cindy yeah. naomi so Linda that is Evangelista, so fucking Krista gay Trillington. rich that is the gayest yeah, shit true. ever please i know but it really worked and it was like if he's not going to be in his videos then like what will be the draw well how about these supermodels who are having this total moment like this is the dawn of the supermodel he's riding that crest it was a brilliant idea david fincher directed the video right because Listen Without Prejudice is otherwise really low key, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to think of the album in terms of its albumness and not just think of Freedom 90. Right. That said, I think that Praying for Time, the first single, is another masterpiece by him. Mm-hmm. I love, love, love that song. Went to number one off the fumes of Faith, clearly, because it is kind of downcast and it really sets the tone for the album a lot better than Freedom did. Right. Well, it's another social consciousness record. It is. And it's also like a really specific one it's kind of about the way that people think they don't have enough and like what actually qualifies someone as rich or poor it's all based on comparison and looking at your neighbors or whatever and, and this performance of charity and stuff The rich declare themselves poor. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Charity is a coat you wear twice a year, I think is a line. Mm. So it's a really nuanced statement about economics and the personal relationship to them that still manages to hit huge. If I were to make this album, I'd be scared shitless. And then Praying for Time comes out and that's a huge hit. It's like, okay, I did it. Like I was able to sell this very nuanced message 
that's kind of neither here nor there ultimately. It's kind of just observing how people relate. But it probably just speaks to how huge he was. I mean, like when you're coming off of a record like Faith, he probably could have like released a sneeze and it would have been a hit, right? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. What about the rest of the album? What's going on on the rest of Listen Without Prejudice? He specifically talks in, there's like a kind of promo documentary that was tied to the release of this album and he talks about waiting for that day which was another single about taking the james brown funky drummer beat right. which also freedom has mm-hmm. Shade. God, it's a raid. <laughs> Cut out the lights. and laying this kind of acoustic folk thing over it. And he Mm -hmm. talks specifically about mixing what he saw as a black and white sensibility in this song. further confounding the prejudice, you know? Yes. Otherwise, it's a pretty downcast album. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, Waiting for That Day probably counts as another up-tempo. And it's right, in the really context of this album, for sure. In the context of this album, <laughs> yeah. which is contemplative and largely acoustic mm-hmm. and really just uncommercial. I mean, he went out of his way to make a commercial record with Faith. He did the exact opposite with Listen Without Prejudice. And it's a really bold move. A lot of artists talk the talk, but he walked the walk with his music and he paid for it. It's really interesting to think about the child. I just am thinking about what you said at the beginning of the conversation who like thought that fame would heal. I know that that's like a universal thing, but I do feel like there is a specific relationship to that concept with gay people. Like there's sort of this idea of like a certain amount of recognition from the outside healing something that's broken on the inside or that feels unhealed on the inside. And I am so interested by the fact that he was able to be this bold. The more common thing, I guess, is what I want to say, is that a pop star comes off of a record that's that successful and then spends their entire career attempting to do it again. Like, just finding ways to repeat it or trying to simply... And it's like, even more so than I maybe even enjoy this record, I'm so moved by his desire to continue to figure out who he actually was as a person and what that means as a gay person in particular, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, at some point, that instinct overtook the modes of escape he was using, whether that be fame, whether that be perfect craftsmanship, whatever it is. I mean, the craftsmanship obviously carries through, but there was some point it felt like to me listening back to it this time where like this sort of self-interrogational instinct became the driving force of his career more so than all of the things that were initially getting him into this business. And I think what's really wise is that there's the sense that he has not realized that yet, that he is on the journey. You know, freedom is about, I'm gonna get myself happy. Yes. It's not, I'm already there. Yes. It's like, no, I'm searching. I'm looking. And like for someone in the closet to make that song is so moving. Like he really did need freedom. He really was like in the pursuit of freedom and like wasn't free. And like that is just, I don't know. There's something really beautiful and sad about that to me. Like, I don't know when I think about him, what he must have been dealing with inside and like balancing the success and that he couldn't be totally free at the same time. I feel like that conflict is fascinating and very heartbreaking to think about. So this record, as we said, has its hits. It has Praying for Time. It has Freedom. But 
is it viewed as a disappointment commercially, like ultimately? Yeah, definitely. Yes. Especially because he didn't participate in the promotion as well. Right. You know, this is a difficult album compared to Faith. Oh my God. It takes pondering. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. And so it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to say, I'm going to do that and I'm not going to do a lot of press. You're not going to see my image. I'm Mm -hmm. basically going to disappear. I also think as high-minded and as much as he did have a goal, I think probably part of it too was arrogance. Probably part Mm. of it was the sense that I am so loved that I can release this and it's going to be just as big of a hit and that'll be that. That was probably part of the calculus and he was definitely disappointed by the reaction after all of this. Mm. You know, he felt that the record company had let him down. Mm. So begins his lawsuit with Sony. Oh, so the lawsuit is generated from feeling like they didn't properly promote the album. Yes. The main thing was that he signed a terrible deal back in the day, like a lot of artists do, and just was not getting properly compensated. I mean, in the James Gavin book, there's a figure quoted, and it's that from 1988 through 1992, Michael's worldwide recording income totaled 7.35 million pounds compared to the 52.45 million that Sony had made off of him. Wow. Yes. So there's that sense of unfairness that's Mm -hmm. happening as well. Mm -hmm. But what actually propels that is him meeting Anselmo Falepa in a roundabout kind of way. This is his boyfriend. This is his boyfriend. This is his first like serious boyfriend Mm -hmm. that he meets at the Rock and Rio concert. Mm. He tells a story about seeing Anselmo from the stage from what Anselmo described that would have been absolutely impossible (laughs) because he was not anywhere near the front. Nonetheless, they meet, they cross paths at this show, they meet, and it's immediately a thing. And I think it's like six months of bliss before Anselmo realizes that he is HIV. So I just can't think of a better crafted tragedy that this guy spends his life closeted kind of feeling not fully a person he meets a person that he can be that with and then so soon he's taken away from him i think that they were together for less than two years complicating things george felt like he couldn't go see anselmo in the hospital because anselmo started living with him in california but then he went back to brazil for treatment once he got really sick george he was closeted he couldn't create any kind of attention brought to him Mm -hmm. so the closet kept him away from anselmo and his funeral oh my my god that's horrible total tragedy but it was the anger that he felt at Anselmo's death that really propelled him to start battling Sony in court. I, th- I mean, and clearly this was one of the most formative moments of his life because it sort of feels like he goes in a direction after this that drastically changes his artistic direction. Yes. And Listen Without Prejudice was actually titled Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1. There was supposed volume to one. be a Volume 2 that I think was meant to be more of like a faith sequel, like a little bit more of a dancey record. It was definitely dancey. He had started working Working on it, yeah. and then the Red Hot Association, which had been releasing these compilations, Red Hot and Blue was their first. It was Cole Porter covers benefit albums for AIDS. Approaches George Michael, and he says, "Oh, well, I have these songs I've been working on for Listen Without Prejudice Volume Two, Too Funky." Do you 
really want to know mm-hmm. and do you want these and so they put them on that record and Lizard Without Prejudice 2 is effectively scrapped from what I understand I don't think it was right. ever completed right and it was just kind of half done he doesn't release another proper record until 1996 is older which yes. I know we touched on a little bit at the beginning of the conversation but to me was the most powerful thing that I listened to this time going Definitely. around and I was kind of fucked up from listening to it to be honest to you like it really took me a minute to like come out of it it is so dark like I just find it's... it utterly dark but so beautifully rendered and done he's so amazing at creating mood there's yeah. almost a cinematic quality to the production Again, I know I brought up Body Heat before, but there's this like film noir vibe to it that comes across in the jazzy influence of the production and the bossa nova feeling of some of the music. The record is clearly sung from the depths of hell. That's what I see it as. It's not like I've had pain and I've processed pain. It's literally like he is in it. Like he is in the thick of it on this record. And this is before he came out. And in fact, I can't remember which mag. I think it was a British magazine. I think it was Q. He specifically answered a question about whether celebrities should come out when he was doing press for this album by saying he didn't think it was necessary. Mm. So he's like defiantly not out while having dedicated this album to Anselmo. And I mean, there's like male pronouns in Jesus to a Child. Right, you know, right, that right. song is clearly about two men in love. That is the saddest fucking song I've ever heard in my life. I was literally like, I'm, this is the bleakest shit I've ever heard. It, it is. It was also a huge, huge hit in England. It went top 10 here, which yeah. is wild, given how slow it is. The Brazilian influence in that song and a few others came from listening to Antonio Carlos Jobim, who mm. died in 1994. He was a Brazilian composer. And obviously the Anselmo Brazilian connection makes that all sing. His drug use was kind of throughout his career, but he got really into pot for this album. So I think that's where you hear some of the moodiness. Mm. There's a little bit of a trip hop, a very kind of like adult grown up trip hop influence on some of the songs like Spitting the Wheel. Sade. Again, this album is like The Central World by Kate Bush. It took becoming an actual adult to finally understand this album. It was very easy to go past and be like, boring adult contemporary whatever right it kind of took me like growing into the age around when they recorded these albums to get what they were talking about their grown-up themes it's honestly fucking berserk to think about that first wham album and then to think about this i, I know what an evolution it's insane i mean and yeah it, this album is really brave to me because he really like puts it out there in this way this is a very as you said both implicitly and explicitly gay album and a yeah. very raw album almost to the extent that like i'm not quite sure i've like i'm trying to think of other pop 
pop albums I've heard from major pop stars that feel like this level raw. I mean, I think like Lemonade has some elements of this where you feel like you're getting like a huge sort of revelation about a really messy emotional experience yes. in specific in this way. But like Lemonade also has more pop instincts going on than this album does. Like, Definitely. It's so funny because I was so entranced by it because the mood is so strong and because his singing is so gorgeous on it and because I was just fascinated listening to where he was coming from on it. But it's also like not necessarily like fun to listen to. It's not like an enjoyable, it's not like a ride of any sort. Like you're really like, fuck, like this is so dark. Uh, Fast Love being an exception kind of on par with Freedom 90. Yes, but still so sad though. Like still sad. It is because he specifically talks about in this context of cruising, the song is about cruising. And he talks about missing his baby in the middle. Like he can only distract himself for so long, basically. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Exactly. It's about sort of like using casual sex as a means of distraction or something like that. To me, Fast Love is the quintessential pre-summer song. It did really hit in May of that year. I guess that was 96. And that was like a very kind of formative summer for me. So I can't not ever feel that. It just feels like possibility. Mm. It feels like the Mm -hmm. start of warmth and excitement to me. It's very seductive. A very kind of New Jack Swing kind of beat. This is the end of New Jack Swing's pop viability. But it's holding on a little bit. I love Fast Love. That's really like Freedom is my favorite George Michael song. Fast Love is my second favorite. It is so good. Another song that really like took me by the neck is this song Spinning the Wheel, which is literally about gay men in an open relationship and the danger of one of them bringing HIV back back to the house. I mean, it literally says, one of these days you're gonna bring some home to me. You know, you've got a thing for danger. I guess you're hungry and you can't see. It is so rare, I feel like, for gay men still to this day to have our lifestyle experience, whatever, our sexual world rendered on major pop records. And like, this is one of those records. Like, I was literally like, oh my God, like you are literally talking to us in this really direct way. I don't feel like this record gets celebrated enough for doing that. No, I agree because it's so subtle about it. And he said that anybody who was paying attention understood that he was making a gay record. Yeah. And so... So, you know, without the formal coming out, which to whatever degree was a cop out. But at the same time, I do think that there is something to be said for speaking to gay people directly as a gay person and not worrying about putting it through a straight filter. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very rare in pop culture. I thought that the assassination of Gianni Versace, the Mm -hmm. Ryan Murphy TV show, did that. Mm -hmm. I think the Billy Eichner movie Bros does that. And I think Older does that as well, where it's like, I'm just going to talk to you and not really care what straight people think or how they interpret it. And that's a great example of it. It really is. This record like really haunted me after I listened to it. I think it's also doubly so because it really was kind of his last album for a really long time. Like it felt like after this record, he retreats from 
making major statements because his life goes into like a bit of personal turmoil. Like, so this record comes out, it's a big success in Europe. I don't think it's a super big success stateside, right? Is that fair? No, it was considered a disappointment. Yeah. I don't know if it sold a million copies. I mean, two hits, two top 10 hits. So that's not nothing, but. So walk us through what happens in 1998. Okay. So on April 7th, 1998, George Michael gets arrested for what was termed engaging in a lewd act. This happens in Beverly Hills in the Will Rogers Memorial Park. Yeah. And, you know, the way that George describes it, and actually what you should do right now is watch the George Michael Oprah Winfrey interview from 2004 when he was promoting patience, his follow-up to older, and this is some years later, because he's still being asked to walk them through this. And he is able to tell this room of, like, normie housewives all about why he was caught with his dick out (laughs) and get them, like, laughing. The premise of the story is, like, if a hot cop shows me his dick, I'm going to show him mine, and everybody just accepts it. People are laughing and clapping. Explain what happened. Uh, What happened was that there was... um, There there were a couple of undercover police in that particular park, uh, which is opposite the Beverly Hills Hotel. Okay, so you're in a park. Very classy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you're in a park. You're in a park opposite the Beverly Hills at the Pink Hotel. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And um, and what's happened is actually basically, it's a a well-known cruising area, and I was in my car on the other side of the road. And there was a police officer or two police officers, as I worked out afterwards, that were kind of. they were impersonating people who were cruising, basically. Impersonating people. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I went into the bathroom when there was no one in it, and the policeman came in after me. Uh-huh, but you don't know he's a policeman. Of course not, Of no. course not. <laughs> and uh, they don't send Columbo in there. They send someone really nice looking. Yeah. <laughs> He was so self-possessed or at least able to put that picture out there that people were just like, yeah, of course. Uh, I totally see why this happened. Just won people over immediately. The fact of the matter is that like he really fucked up with this, like in terms of the optics of his career and then saved it so incredibly through his sheer charisma. Every single interview he did about it, you know, he said he wasn't ashamed. He talked about it being a stupid thing to do, but whatever, here it is. He said that he was entrapped, which I believe too. And so he is able to just, as much as the space, this controversy, this scandal took up, he really deflected it really, really well, ends up kind of sending it up in the outside video. That's this like kind of right. ersatz disco song. It kind of reminds me of New York City Boy by totally. Pet Shop Boys, where totally. it's just like ultra disco, not yeah. even trying to sound like a real disco song. No. It's trying to sound like a fake disco song. It's like a Jamiroquai 90s disco song. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. He dresses as a cop in the video. Yeah. It takes place in a bathroom. Yeah. There's all of this stuff and he is just completely willing to embrace this part of his personality that he had completely obscured from the public view for so long. It's like, it was, wow. It's incredible. You watch that video and it's incredible. You're like, he walked so easily into owning this and like to like get yeah. it, but it was so genius. And I'm like, wow. It made me think like, okay, maybe he had done an effective job of like slowly priming the public for this revelation. Kind of. Maybe by the time it happened, he had let it just seep in slowly or something like that. And people weren't particularly surprised. It was hard for me to process that someone who had spent so much time and energy obscuring this fact, right? Like, 
singing about women on faith, like clearly using like female pronouns and whatever. Yeah. And then like 10 years later being like, yeah, bitch, I got caught fucking sucking a cop's dick in the urinal. And like now I'm making a video that's like, I'm literally dressed like a Chippendale stripper male cop. And like that video is gay people kissing and lesbians kissing in 1998, which feels like pretty revelatory. That like warmed my heart yeah. so much. That felt like a real moment of freedom for him. Coming off of older and then you hear that song, like him back to making like a dance record, him having fun with his image dancing and like getting to really express himself for like who he really was finally like that was a real exhale of a song I felt like a hundred percent and he does at least you know set this tone for the rest of his career at least in terms of his discussion of being gay and gay sex where he talks about being in an open relationship with Kenny Goss who he was with for a really long time and he talks about his refusal to give up cruising and cottaging right. and this is years later I and he's caught that. doing this Again, maybe more than once, it becomes kind of like a running joke. Oh my God. He has a wonderful sense of humor about himself too, which should be underscored. Unfortunately, George Michael is not an example of it gets better. Uh George Michael comes out and his life seems to get very much worse. And it's complicated by a lot of things. And you can't just hang it on, okay, he came out and his career fell apart because his career was already kind of falling apart at this point. And his general output has cooled off as well. He's just not making music like like he used to. Right. And then Patience is like his last duo album of original tracks. That comes out in 2004. makes no impact here. Mm-hmm. But he also starts just being a total mess in public. Multiple times is found asleep at the wheel in the middle of traffic right. in his car. Right. And it's like, you're George Michael. Uh-huh. If my uncle were doing that, it would be mildly scandalous right. in his home. T- you're George <laughs> Michael and this is happening. James Gavin's book says it's a product of G that he was doing GHB oh. and getting behind the wheel, oh, shit. which makes a lot of sense to me. It's also a very gay way to go out. <laughs> George just kind of drops the ball and can't quite pick it up. Right. And rather tragically ends up dead on Christmas, a holiday that he loved. Oh you know, my God. A lot of tragedy that happens and he just can't quite get it together. And also, I think that there was something very honest about him turning his back on the spotlight as early as he did. Mm -hmm. He did seem to be a home buddy. He really liked being at home with his dogs, apparently. Mm -hmm. Let's not look at his entire tragedy. He's sitting on a ton of money. He's also incredibly generous anonymously, not putting at all a spotlight on himself as he's donating to various causes and people and just hearing stories about people and then writing them a check the next day. Oh my God. I love that kind of story yeah. the most yeah. because it really just seems like there was a good guy in there, you know? I have to say, that's what I walked away from this thinking. Like, he seemed like he was a genuinely really good person. Yeah. He just gave that off. He really did seem like a very genuine person and like somebody that did his best and like was hampered by so many interesting things and achieved so much in spite of being so held down in so many different ways you know I feel like maybe like the journey with his music or something was just the ultimate discovery that like ultimately he didn't really want to be famous and like he didn't really like care for the spotlight and like maybe it was an authentic living out of his true self that he earned through whatever self-discovery process he went on through his discography I do love the idea of him coming around to realizing that what he had which was not fame is what he needed all along because that's the Wizard of Oz which is another gay thing you know everything you needed was in your backyard. (laughs) 
I mean, I love that thing. I think it was a lot more tortured and messy. I wish that we could be telling the story. And George Michael is, he's out of public life, but he's living happily on his estate off of this fortune that he amassed. And he really did it. It was a lot more tragic than that. It is a sad story. I walk away from it kind of heartbroken for him, but... Also really uplifted by some of this amazing music. On a slightly more positive note, I think we see his legacy in implicit ways pretty heavily throughout contemporary pop music in the out gay male pop stars that have been able to exist after him in Frank Ocean, in Little Nas X, in Troy Sivan, Sam Smith. We're starting to see a generation of male pop stars that can like be out. And I think George Michael, maybe in an unconscious way for a lot of people, softened the ground for that to happen. It's kind of what I was getting at earlier, which is like, okay, by the time he came out in 1998, maybe housewives weren't that upset about it or freaked out about it because they did sort of know and they were mostly sort of cool with it ultimately at the end of the day. And without figures that are doing that, like you don't get to have figures that are able to like not have to hide. And we're still fighting that fight. I mean, we're still in 2022. We have such a dearth of gay out male K-pop stars. It's still so rare and it's still so rare for them to be out and to be really gay in their music. So, you know, I think that he definitely feels like a really important inflection point in that story in pop music to me. Definitely. All right, so let's talk about the Pantheon. Where do you see George? What tier do you see George Michael in? It's a really hard one because I think it's changed over time. Well, we got it. Uh, we're talking now. We're talking now. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that he is part of the icon tier. No, I think that's out. I, I think it's a two or three conversation in my mind. Yes, I think so too. I think that given where I've been, I can't see him as anything but a megastar. Right. I could also very well accept, especially from a younger person, an argument that he is a mere superstar, that he's tier three. Okay, let me let me throw some out there for you. Is George Michael's impact on par with Janet's? No, I would say it's less. Janet's had a longer run and is much more of a reference point, I think, today for mm-hmm. people. An explicitly stated reference point. Let's say that you were offering a four-hour course on pop history and that you had to encapsulate the entirety of pop history in a four-hour class, would you have to bring him up? I think so. I think because specifically now, like maybe in 2010, you could make the argument that no, but now because of the increased awareness and emphasis placed on representation 100%. So you're saying like in a way, the gay thing is a bigger legacy than the music? In certain ways, yes. But we wouldn't be talking about him without the two. Of course, of course. If he were alive today, do you think he would plausibly get a headlining spot at the Super Bowl? At the Super Bowl? Ugh. I don't know about that. I think he could definitely, I mean, this is a few years ago, but the 25 live tour that he did from 2006, 2008, the very fact of the matter that it stretched on for two years and comprised 106 shows, that was a huge, huge success, means that he has that kind of legacy cachet that I think probably if he could have gotten his shit together, let's say, and he was still alive, he probably could do that. Like, could he have done, he could have done an arena tour in 2022. I think so. Certainly in Europe. No doubt about it. 
playing major cities in America, that seems plausible. Mm-hmm. I would, I th- especially if it was like well reviewed or well regarded, and there was some buzz. This could be my bias towards these '80s pop figures because I feel as though somehow their status as like the pioneers of the modern concept of pop stardom elevates them. Like I ran into the similar issue with Cindy Lauper, where we were mm. debating three or four. You know, mm-hmm. and I ended up putting her in three because I just feel like maybe like metrics wise she belongs in four because it was really like kind of one record with some other hits on the second album and then it was kind of that was the end of it for the most part george feels bigger than her for sure but i feel like i don't know i feel inclined to put him in tier two because i just feel like when you start listing off those legends of the 80s like he's maybe not in the first group of people you say but he feels like he's in that second group of people that you'll start talking about right like or maybe he is in the first group i don't know like i mean yeah i think of i I would think Michael Jackson, Madonna, Prince, Bruce Springsteen. Janet. I think George before Janet, but only because Rhythm Nation bled so much into 90. Right. And then the 90s records were so big. Janet was such a huge thing. So like. I feel like we should put him in too. I don't know. That's just intuitively what my mind is telling me. I don't feel like he belongs in three. I just don't. I feel like he's such an icon. Like he's such a huge icon. I don't know. It just, it feels ethereal to me, but like, I just don't think I would feel right putting him in tier three. Like, I don't think he belongs with Katie. I think he belongs more with these people. I feel like a two. What do you think? Two makes sense to me. Yeah. Two cuspy, but over to the two, I'd say. Like kind of cuspy. Over to the two. Probably could not headline the Super Bowl. Right. Without a major story. But maybe could have headlined the Super Bowl. Could have. Like back in the era where, and we did this episode, back in the era where they were doing like the YouTube Bruce Springsteen vibe. Yeah. And maybe they would have thrown it to him at that. I could have seen that. Yeah. I could have seen that too. All right. But we're good with two. We feel like okay about that. I feel good about yeah. two. So last question. What's an underrated George Michael song that we can send the show out on? You can say as if you want to. <laughs> is that what you want? It is. But I want you to say what you want. Okay. My favorite song on older is Move On. Mm. One of the only things that gestures at uplift on that album. Exactly. But as makes sense, as doesn't even gesture at uplift, as is uplift. I love that song and I love yeah. that video. And I also think that yes. song is meaningful because as I mentioned earlier, George pilloried black musical forms for sure. But also he was really beloved by the actual purveyors of many of these forms and like got the sort of stamp of approval from Aretha Franklin for fuck's sake. Aretha Whitney, Mare. But I love As and I love this version of As and I also love the music video with all of the doppelgangers of them in the club. I think it's a real classic, right? So let's go out on As. Okay, let's do it. Rich Joswiak. Thank you so much for being on the show again. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to talk about George. I get to talk about what I love, but could be better than that. This was a gratifying deep dive, I have to say. I really feel like I got a lot out of it. I'm glad that you did. I'm glad that you were able to spend more time with his work. All right, there you have it. Pop Pantheon, George Michael, a tier two megastar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you, as always, to the dearest, most amazing Rich Juzwiak. Thank you so much for being on the show. Please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod, on Twitter and Instagram, me at DJ XIV on both Twitter and Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon and help us get the show in front of more people. Hop in our Discord channel, Spotify playlist, come to Gorgeous Gorgeous, buy our merch hat. Links for all of that is in the show notes and on social media thank you so much to russ martin for everything he does to make the show happen every week and until we meet again you guys have a wonderful life bye bye now i know deep in my mind
the love of me I felt behind. 